0: So a few weeks ago, we, we, uh, we began a look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, a very enjoyable, very edifying book in the scriptures to be able to read together and study together. And uh, if you would take your Bibles and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at the last part of 1 Thessalonians 2 today. And we're going to be talking about this idea. And it probably, it may even sound like a strange question, but I'm going to bring it up anyway because I think it's addressed here in this portion of God's Word. It's this question of, of can we demonstrate love from a distance? Can we demonstrate love from a distance? Now, in this particular context, we'll see this take place between the Apostle Paul and the church at Thessalonica. But I think there's a personal application to that question as well. So we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Starting with verse 17, and we're going to read down to verse 5 of chapter 3. This is what it says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to look at your word together now. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have open minds and open hearts to what your word instructs us to do and to understand. Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak these truths to our hearts and that you'd prepare us for the day, for the week, for the year, and ultimately for the life that you've called us to live. And Lord, even as we wrestle with this idea of showing love at a distance, we pray that we would understand that concept in the way that it's proclaimed here, in the way that it's taught in this portion of Scripture with a discipleship focus. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd speak these truths to our hearts now, and we commit this time to your care, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I feel like I'm at a transitional season of life, and what I mean by that is this. My children are all getting older, And as they get older, they're becoming less and less dependent on the need for supervision, less and less dependent on the need for intervention on my part, not purely independent of it, but less and less dependent. But even as they age, even as they, you know, kind of venture out on their own, and and I think um, need me a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less, my fatherly instincts remain strong. They, they haven't diminished. You know, those instincts remain strong. I like to know where they are. I like to know what they're doing. And I like to know how it's going for them. And I highly doubt that that's ever going to change. I'm probably always going to want to know these things. Now, recently on the weekends, my son, whom you probably noticed, my son Jay hasn't been here the past couple weeks. And, reason he hasn't been here the past couple weeks is because he's, he's agreed to volunteer for a few weeks uh, with a ministry, specifically the ministry of the Pocono Mountain Bible Conference, that's a little over two hours away. We have some others from our church that are up there uh, this weekend as well. But what he's been doing the past group of weeks and what he's going to be doing for the next few weeks as well is driving up to be there on Fridays and spending the weekend volunteering with that ministry. He's been driving his car now for a little bit over a year. He owns his own car. I don't have any problem with him going there or doing that. He doesn't even ask me for gas money. You know, so those are certainly perks, right? Again, I also approve of the ministry that he's volunteering his time with. But each Friday, when he makes that two-hour drive, I have a few requests of him. And I have the same request for him on Sunday when he makes the drive back. And that's when I'm really concerned, because at that point, I expect him to be tired. So if you think about it, pray this afternoon for those that are tired, that are making their way back down. Uh, But I want him, when he leaves on Fridays, to call or text me when he leaves. And then I know that when he gets to the halfway point, he always stops and and grabs a coffee. So I want him to text me when he gets to the halfway point and gets his coffee. So I want to know. And then I'd like him to either call or text when he arrives so that I know that he arrived safely. Are any of those things unreasonable? All right, all those things seem perfectly reasonable to me as well. I don't know if I come across as annoying when I request them, but I'm gonna request them anyway, right? But here's the thing. If he forgets, I have a secret weapon. And I don't know what you think about me carrying weapons, but I have a secret weapon and it's this. We have a kind of insurance company that has a a transmitter in his car and I can go on my phone and I could see where that car is at any given time. I could go on my phone and see, all right, where's that car? There it is. And so the other day I got a text from him, but four minutes before he sent me the text to tell me that he had arrived, I already knew. <laughs> I already knew because I went online, I was like, oh, he's on Clifton Beach Road. That's the road that the camp is on. So again, my love for him as a father, and this is an expression of love. You, know, this is, you can't help but be concerned you know, for the safety, for the well-being of your family for the safety the well-being of your children my love for him extends whether he's local or whether he's a distance away whether he's within arm's reach or whether i can't even reach him my love for him is not going to diminish it's something that continues and when you look at the portion of scripture that we just read together it's an expression of love it's a kind of fatherly love that the apostle paul expressed for the thessalonian church and he was distant from them at the time that he wrote this letter down but he wanted to know how they were doing and he makes it clear that it pained him greatly that he was forced to wait to find out about their spiritual welfare he wanted to know how they were doing but he was you know communication wasn't an easy thing to to come by during that era and he wanted to know how they were doing and so in first thessalonians chapter 2 starting with verse 17 where we read and then down to verse uh, 5 of chapter 3 you have paul showing us what it looks like to demonstrate genuine love from a distance. And that's what he's doing here. And, he, and, and there's some challenges that come with doing that. And I want to discuss some of those this morning as we take a look at this portion of scripture. And one of those challenges is this. If you're trying to show love at a distance, whether it be for a family member, whether it be for someone whose faith you're invested in, you actually at times might be hindered from showing concern. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me reread Paul's actual words. Look at verse 17. He says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Now, I'm going to continue reading here in just a second, but do you sense the emotion Paul is expressing when he pens these words? Do you sense the emotion? He's expressing here verse 18. He says, because we wanted to come to you. I Paul again and again, but Satan hindered us for what is our hope or joy or crown or, uh, of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you for you are our glory and joy. Now. When Paul and Silas first visited the city of Thessalonica, they were blessed with a wide open opportunity to proclaim the gospel there. They were blessed with a wide open opportunity to train these these new believers who came to faith in Christ. And I imagine that from the outside perspective, it might not have looked like a great opportunity because there was a lot of opposition that was being experienced in that city. So opposition doesn't always translate to opportunity in our minds, but they saw it as a great opportunity. And we could see that the Lord was using this, uh, this experience and he, he made use of Paul and Silas and their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel in that context to do a great work in that city. Again, even in the midst of a lot of opposition. And I'm certain that the Apostle Paul, as I look at his words, I'm certain that he wished that he could have remained longer with these younger believers. He wanted to stick around. He wanted to pour more into them. He wanted to train them. But as he stated in these verses, he was torn away from them. He was torn away. It wasn't that he wanted to be away from them. He was torn away from them. If you remember what took place for the sake of his safety, the brothers in that city, they assisted him with the process of moving on, to another city. There were many people in Thessalonica who wanted to harm Paul and Silas. They wanted to harm them. And so those who shared Paul's faith in Christ, they decided that they didn't want to see any of that harm come to fruition. They didn't want to see Paul's ministry or Silas's ministry hindered. And so they facilitated basically their ability to safely escape the city, to safely escape harm and sent them on to another community, to another city to proclaim and preach the gospel. But Paul felt like it was one of those moments where he really didn't have a choice. He felt kind of torn away. You know, his Christian family there, you know, his brothers and sisters in Christ were insisting, you must leave. People are going to harm you. And they're ushered out of the city and brought along to another place But he felt torn away. He felt torn. He felt emotionally torn as well. Now, when you look at what Paul says here, you know, again, it seems clear he didn't want to be away very long. You know, he understood that in the moment, okay, I guess I have to be away, but I don't want to be away forever. And he actually tells them here that he desired to see them face to face. And apparently, and we don't know all the details of how this went, but apparently he attempted more than once to make that happen. So he was trying to, I, I, Paul must have been so fit, by the way. You know, and I think about this, I, I, I think about, you know, during that era, yeah, some of the travel he did was by boat. But much of the travel you did during that era, it wasn't even by animal. Most of the time, if you had animals, they were there to carry your luggage. Most of the traveling you did was by foot. And I, and, and you look, and maybe even your Bible might even have a map in the back of it. And if you don't You probably find one easily online, but it shows you the distances, the land masses that Paul, uh, you know, crossed over. I think this guy must have been so fit, (laughs) you know, must have been so healthy in that respect. And he tried to get back to them. You know, he tried to, to be able to visit them over and over and over again. He indicates he tried to get back to them and visit. But he says that he was directly hindered by Satan in those attempts to get back to Thessalonica. That when he looked at it, it wasn't just circumstantial. It wasn't just, you know, kind of like whatever circumstances. He interpreted what was taking place as the direct hindrance, the direct activity of Satan to prevent him from actually being able to get back to Thessalonica. And I think that's something, I'm glad he brings it up in this portion of Scripture because I don't think we think about this enough. You know, it's a useful reality for us to contemplate If we're actually, if you're at the point of spiritual maturity where you're not just ingesting spiritual truth, but you're also trying to invest the truth in other people, you're actively trying to invest the truth in other people. Um, I, I think it's useful to understand some of the things that the Apostle Paul was experiencing when he was trying to do that. Sometimes you might actually be hindered from doing this. And there might be a spiritual component to it. Satan intentionally intentionally and fervently, so he's doing, doing this both ways, right? He's very intentional about it. He's very fervent about trying to thwart the proclamation of the gospel and trying to prevent the discipleship of those who come to faith in Christ. He tries to prevent the gospel from going forward, and he tries to prevent people from growing in their newfound faith. Well, how does he do it? What is he up to? What is he doing when he's trying to thwart the message of the gospel from going forward or from discipleship uh, from taking place? Well, two of the most common tactics that Satan and his demons seem to employ are direct attack and indirect deception. So he'll directly attack and he'll indirectly deceive or even directly deceive I think that there are many ways that those tactics can be utilized, but sometimes he'll attack people through other people, right? You ever go through a season of time where you're actually attacked by other people and you have to remind yourself, wait a second, Scripture says, my battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. Right now that person is actually being used like a pawn of Satan and they don't even know it. So show them mercy. Show them grace. They have no idea the strings that are being pulled in their life because of their lack of faith. So sometimes they'll attack us through other people. Sometimes they'll attack believers through governments. I mean, historically, has that not happened? It's happened many times, right? He even seems to have, when you look through scriptures like the book of Job, when you look at some other places as well, seems to have the ability to attack, attack people in regard to physical health as well. And uh, sometimes he's allowed to do that. You know, he would attack people sometimes through physical health. He also deceives weak and worldly minds. And he promotes division. He promotes false doctrine. These were issues, by the way, that they dealt with frequently in the early church where you had... Well-meaning believers that all of a sudden were on two ends of the spectrum in regard to certain things. And all of a sudden they're, they're very divisive toward each other. And there's division and there's conflict and all of this. And you, you look at this and you're like, all right, why is this taking place? Well, the reason it's taking place is because it's a spiritual battle designed to prevent the gospel from being proclaimed. And it's designed to prevent people from being discipled. So if you can get two people who maybe at a season of their life, their spiritual heft isn't really there. Or their maturity in Christ hasn't really grown, and so they're, they're still at a spot of worldliness. They're still at a spot of, of weakness. You creep into their mind and creep into their attitude and creep into their, to their actions and uh, encourage them to be divisive with one another, to fight over minor things. By the way, in marriage, you ever notice the nature of fights? <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're fighting with your spouse, do you ever fight about world peace? Do you ever fight about whether or not we should actually try and assist Australia with the flames that, that uh, have been ravaging their country? No, what do you fight about? You're taking too long to use the sink, right? I need to use the sink too. There is one sink. Could you please at least share, right? It's like, do you really, really, you're going to, you're, you're going to, no, I'm not even going to go that <laughs> way. Might be too self-revelatory, you know. The point being, um, how many fights in life are over actual major things? Isn't it usually minor quabbles that start to feel major and then it becomes divisive? And does that not happen in the context of believers, even part of a local church or the church in the universal sense? Sometimes we find ourselves really squabbling over things that have no significance whatsoever And I think that that's one of Satan's favorite tactics, to promote division. He also encourages people to believe in false doctrines. And and he'll kind of, um, you know, just try and infiltrate people's minds and hearts to believe falsehood. And, and, you know, apparently he was attempting to do some of these things in Paul's context. As Paul was trying to reach the Thessalonians, as he was trying to get back to them, there were certain things preventing him, and some of these tactics, maybe it was direct opposition, maybe it was attacks against his health, maybe it was believers not even being on the same page. I don't know. He doesn't really elaborate on it in, in these verses, but he just he seems to have a clear understanding that Satan was hindering his visit, and I would suspect it was probably through one of those approaches. Now, I was reading something very interesting recently about moose all right so that's the plural of moose right the plural of moose is moose right so moose plural and moose singular and i thought to myself you know what i'm actually going to i'm actually going to read this to you it's very brief but it has a spiritual application you'll see it right away in fact the person that shared it shared it from a spiritual perspective this is something that Craig Larson shared, and I want to, I'm just going to read his words instead of paraphrasing it. He said this, he was, he was looking at something that National Geographic had posted about moose. The plural of moose. <laughs> it says this, recently National Geographic ran an article about <coughs> the Alaskan bull moose. The males of the species... Battle for dominance during the fall breeding season, literally going head-to-head with antlers crunching together as they collide. Often the antlers, their only weapon, are broken, and that ensures defeat. The heftiest moose with the largest and strongest antlers triumphs. Therefore, the, the battle fought in the fall is really won during the summer when the moose eat continually. The one that consumes the best diet for growing antlers and gaining weight will be the heavyweight in the fight. Those that eat inadequately sport weaker antlers and less bulk. And this is how he kind of ties this in. He says this. He says, there's a lesson for us here. Spiritual battles await. Satan will choose a season to attack. Will we be victorious or will we fall? Much depends on what we do now before the war begins. The Bull Moose principle, he says, is this. Enduring faith, strength, and wisdom for trials are best developed before they're needed. When I read that, I thought, that's insightful. I thought that was useful. These things are best developed before they're needed. So the point being, if you're at the point of spiritual maturity, if your walk with the Lord is at a point where where you see him pouring into your life over and over and over again, and now you're compelled to pour what he's pouring into your life into the lives of other people, particularly if they maybe aren't even in close proximity to you, Don't be surprised if at times you're hindered from showing concern. But when the hindrances come, make sure you're prepared. Remember the power of Christ that is offered to you through prayer. Petition the Lord. Seek his intervention. Trust him to demolish spiritual strongholds of ungodly opposition. He does that every day. And this was something that was very much the case in the Apostle Paul's experience, but it's not just something relegated to a generation that lived a couple thousand years ago. It's something that you and I wrestle with as well. Satan hasn't given up his attempts to stop the the, the proclamation of the gospel and to stop discipleship from taking place. We need to be prayed up. We need to be prepared. We need to be ready when those seasons of opposition come. Something else that's illustrated for us in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, we see in the first few verses of chapter 3. And here we're encouraged to accept the role and the reality of affliction. Look at what it says in verse 1 and the verses following in 1 uh, in Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. I, uh, I have a running group text with my four college roommates. The five of us lived together. Most of us were not planning to be pastors. All five of us are. <laughs> one of us is in Michigan, one of us is in New Jersey, two of us are in Pennsylvania and one's in Florida. And uh, last night I, I said, hey, uh, to, to one of my friends, one of my former college roommates, I said, hey, just so you know, uh, tomorrow I'm gonna be sharing something with my congregation that I remember you telling me 23 years ago. And he said, really, what was it? And so I told him what it was. But I remember during our college years, one of my roommates said to me one evening, he said, you know, I just had the most interesting conversation with somebody in the library. I said, why? What was it? He was telling me about this conversation he was having with another guy who was at the school uh, training for vocational ministry. and, um, And this guy was telling him about the job that he expected to get hired for right when he graduated. Now, it was an imaginary job. It was theoretical, this discussion. It wasn't something that was an actual job offer. But it was a ministry job that he thought would result in him being highly paid and not having to put in a lot of time. And um, it was going to be low hours, low expectations, high perks, and just about zero affliction. That was kind of the summary of it. And my friend came back. And he said to me, he's like, i got to tell you about this conversation. And he told me about this, and we both kind of looked at each other. And my friend said, yeah, I don't think he's ever going to get hired with that mindset. <laughs> now it's 23 years later, and guess what? I don't think he did. I'm pretty sure he did not. Pretty sure that door wasn't open to him. He was looking for this affliction-free life, or this idea of ministry, service to the Lord, but zero affliction and all perks. And I thought, okay, that's not really the motivation to serve in that capacity, and I wasn't surprised that the Lord has not opened the door for him to do that. Now, admittedly, and I think we could all admit this, affliction is not something we tend to be fond of. I don't think any of us is fond of affliction. I think sometimes affliction can come to us as a health need, Right? Sometimes we deal with health needs, we're like, all right, this is an affliction, I don't really want it, I, I, I want to get past it, I want to get better. Um, but sometimes affliction comes in the form of a health need. Other times, affliction can come at the hands of an oppressor. Might be somebody in your life that has authority over you that you feel acts in an oppressive way toward you. Usually when affliction comes, it's, a, it's at the hand of, of forces that we feel like they're exerting their power and their influence over us to prevent us from doing what we're called to do. But sometimes, at least in the moment, we might not feel like we're, we have any power to stand up against it. Now, in the Gospels, when you look through what Jesus said when he was instructing the disciples, he warned us that there would be seasons when we would experience affliction in, the, in this world because of this world's hatred for our relationship with him. And Paul apparently conveyed that same warning to the church at Thessalonica. He knew that there would be people in the city who would treat them poorly, and he wanted them to be prepared for the inevitable. But even though he was, he was certain, that it, that it or at least he felt like it was very likely that they would be treated that way, he still wanted to know how they were faring. You know, was their faith growing stronger in the midst of persecution? How harsh were they being treated? Did any of these newly professing believers abdicate their faith in Christ under pressure? So Paul tells us that that when he couldn't stand the thought of wondering any longer, he sent Timothy to them to check on them and to confirm that they were doing okay. And Timothy's job was to bolster their faith through establishing them in the faith a little bit deeper and exhorting them, to challenge them. And this way, they wouldn't be thin-skinned, weak-willed, surface-level people. The idea was that they would be deep Believers, mature believers, growing believers, the investments made in them would help facilitate their ongoing maturity in Jesus Christ. Now, it may not feel in the moment like adversity is much of a gift. But the truth is adversity can be a gift that the Lord uses to strengthen our faith and deepen our reliance on him. That second part being something that I think that I've seen the Lord utilize adversity and affliction to do for me in particular. There are plenty of times when I would say to you, oh yeah, no, my faith is strong. It's like, okay, that's fine that your faith is strong in some areas, but how about if I phrase it this way? Are you relying on Christ right now, or are you relying on something else? Maybe your own strength or something else. And I think for me, one of the things that the Lord's taught me through affliction is the, the expression of faith that looks like reliance on the Lord. So affliction tends to be one of those things, it's like a gift that we don't really come to appreciate until sometimes years afterward. But then when we reflect on what the Lord's been doing in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives, as he's strengthened our faith and deepened our reliance on him, we recognize, oh, wait a second, this was a wonderful thing. Are you familiar with what it tells us in James chapter 1 about our trials and our afflictions? It's a very well-known portion of Scripture. I think I, I want to read it to us. In James chapter one, verses two through four, it says this, "Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Have you ever prayed to the Lord and asked Him to make you stronger in your faith? Do you ever consider that this is part of that process? Oh, do you feel (laughs) hoodwinked? Lord, please make my faith strong. Absolutely. And then he sends adversity. It's like, Lord, what are you doing? I'm answering your prayer. I'm going to make you strong. Adversity is a gift. We don't always feel like it's a gift in the moment, but it has a role. It has a responsibility. It's useful And the Lord uses it to strengthen our faith and deepen our reliance on him. And Paul was talking about this with the Thessalonians, but he told them about it ahead of time. He said, look, just as Christ revealed to us, we're revealing it to you. Don't expect to be treated in this world any better than Jesus was treated while he was here. And what did they do to Christ? They crucified him. They rejected his offer of help and crucified him. So if we have convinced ourselves that we are going to be treated any better than Jesus was, was in this world, we're probably preaching a false gospel to our hearts, and we need to stop. <laughs> Adversity, affliction, these are the things that will come if you stick your neck out, live out your faith in the public square, and try and invest it in other people. Expect the affliction and count it all joy. One other thing that this scripture points out to us, and this is where I want to finish today. And that's this, follow up on the investment you've made in the lives of others. Look at what it says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. It says this, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, again, a very emotional statement, right? Let me reread it. He says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You ever spend time working on something only to discover, maybe even soon after, that your, your efforts were undone by the carelessness of somebody else? You ever invest your time and your effort and your energy into something and then have someone undo those efforts, undo that investment? Sometimes it happens in big ways, other times it happens in very small and casual ways. But I bet you probably had some experience in your life that reflects what I'll share with you in a moment here remember when I was a teenager I went to a Christian bookstore I was looking for things to read that would feed my faith and while I was in the bookstore I came across a variety of things but my budget was kind of low so I wasn't really in the book budget realm I was more in the magazine budget realm so I was looking through the magazines and I eventually came across a magazine that was primarily focused on Christian music and I thought oh you know what I'll get this and I'll read this, and this will be encouraging as I I walk with the Lord. I love music, love Christian music. And so I bought this Christian music magazine, paid for it, and uh, started walking out of the store. Now, I didn't realize when I was walking out of the store that while I had been in the store, a city worker had been repairing the sidewalk uh, right outside the entrance of the store. And when I walked out, you know, I guess I'd been in there long enough that plenty had happened while I was in the store. But when I walked out, all I did was this, I had the magazine in my hand, and I was starting to page through it, you know, and the precursor to walking around with the cell phone and not paying attention to where you're going, right? You know, back then we had to use paper, right? And so you know, I'm staring at this and I'm walking out of the store and all I did was make a quick left and immediately I felt my feet sink into fresh concrete. I just went, it was like this, and it was only like the toes of my feet because I felt it immediately, but I, I, I just turned to the left. He didn't have it blocked off, not blocked off or anything, and I just stepped, and I was like, oh, what's going on? And I took one more step in it to try and get my balance, and then hopped out of it, and then I look at this fresh concrete. It had the perfect lines and everything in it, and two partial footprints. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, okay, that was very unintentional. It probably would have been a good idea if you're going to do this right outside the exit to a business, if you rope it off or block it off somehow. But I was kind of ambivalent. I was just reading my new magazine. I walked right through fresh concrete. And I felt bad because that man's efforts had been wasted. And I was the one that wasted them. Well, before Paul heard Timothy's glowing report of the Thessalonians' faith, he wondered if his time... And his investment in them might have been in vain because he didn't know how the story ended he didn't know what happened after they had to leave out of the city they weren't there very long and he wondered you know what's happening you know are they growing or are they retreating he wondered if the pressures of persecution might have might have gotten to them you know he wondered if if the pressures of persecution were influencing them to return to the faithless lives that they had lived before And his curiosity about their well-being, I imagine that it was probably starting to keep him up at night. But again, I also think he was probably quite uh, just relieved when Timothy came with the report and said, no, they're actually doing well. They're actually doing well. But discipleship, let me say this as we finish up here. Just a couple quick thoughts as we finish. Discipleship is a process. We become disciples of Christ the moment we trust in him. But the process of growth that we experience takes place over the course of a lifetime. Now, I'm truly grateful for the people that the Lord's placed in my life who bother to check in on me from time to time. Uh, Their their follow-up on the investment that they've made in my life, it actually does make a difference. And even as I mentioned this, I could picture the faces of the people in my life who do this with regularity. I'm grateful for them. I'm thankful for them. If you've come to faith in Christ... The Lord does not want to see the investment that's been made in your life wasted. He doesn't want it to have been in vain. He makes it clear in his word that your ongoing development as a Christian is something that he values. Let me show you three quick scriptures that reveal this. First is in 2 Peter 3, verse 18, where it says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What's the admonition we're given there? Grow. Grow. And that's to all of us, whether you feel like you're new at this or whether you feel like you're seasoned. We all have room to grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 6.1, it says this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. To understand the full understanding of the gospel. To understand the application of the gospel to all areas of our lives. To press on, to go on to maturity. Not to remain immature in our faith, but to go on to maturity. You know, there are plenty of Christians in this world that have been believers in Christ for decades, but their maturity level isn't much past week one. And the scripture is challenging us to go on to maturity. One more, and this is something the disciples themselves said. So the apostles said to the Lord in Luke 17, 5, increase our faith. Increase our faith. That could be a dangerous thing to pray, but I think we should all pray it. Increase our faith. Would we be willing to ask the Lord to increase our faith today? Increase our faith. Just as Paul was demonstrating genuine love for the Thessalonians here at a distance, we have the Lord demonstrating love for us. He demonstrates it powerfully, he demonstrates it regularly. He demonstrates his ongoing concern for our well-being and for our growth. Honor his concern for you by pressing on in faith, regardless of whatever adversity you might be required to endure. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of scripture like this. It shows us this idea of love being demonstrated from a distance. And it also displays to us a mindset of maturity, what it looks like to grow in our walk with you. Lord, we know that at times it could be tempting for us to just remain complacent. There are certainly seasons of my life that I would look at and I would say that was definitely a complacent season of my life. But Lord... It's not your desire that I remain complacent or that any of us remain complacent. Your desire is that we grow in our walk with you. You want us to be men and women who honor you in all respects. You want us to grow mature. You want us to be people who are focused on what you've held out for us, Lord. And Lord, just as the Apostle Paul was concerned for the growth of the Thessalonians and also concerned that they not shrink back in the midst of persecution, we know that you express that same concern for us. We know, Lord, that that's something that matters to you. So Lord, we pray that we would press on to maturity, that we would be able to openly pray to you, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, that is, that's my prayer for myself and that's my prayer for each and every one of us in the hearing of your word today. But Lord, as you increase our faith, we also pray that you would help us to rely on your strength and to rely on your power and to rely on your comfort. Because as our faith increases, we will increasingly need to, de- to, de- to develop or deepen our reliance on those very things. We need to rely on you as you transform us. So thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for challenging us from a letter that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a church in Thessalonica. We pray that we would apply these deep spiritual truths to our walk with you and that by your grace we would continue to grow. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name.